Liberty Station is brought to you by my good friends at Devoted Capital, where they believe how you profit matters. They're dedicated to helping you align your investments with your values, empowering you to a life well-lived. Bryce Eddy here, and uh, I'm coming to you from the Liberty Station Studios, and I'm excited about this episode because I was an early adopter of this man, and I think he's uh, not just brilliant, but he's also very funny, and um, I, uh, I I love him. I am excited to uh, welcome Dr. James Lindsay to the show. Hey, hey, happy to be here. Yeah, so, um, you know, to, to start us out, um, you know, I think when you came and spoke here at our church, you didn't uh, hit on um, the way I originally discovered you, and, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like, I've lis- I listen to so many podcasts and, you know, news sources and things like that, but I, I believe I found you originally, were you on the Adam Carolla show um, at some I point? I was, yeah, a okay. long time ago. Okay. Yeah. I think that's where I originally heard you and started kind of following you at, at sort of that, that low level and then quickly became a fan. And so when we were able to, to grab you to, to come and speak here, um, I was super excited. And then also following you on Twitter, you know, you've been so, you know, brilliant. So um, with that, tell the audience um, about the, and, and I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but you guys did some fake pseudo-scientific papers to troll these, um, you know, publications, and you did it brilliantly. So uh, talk a little bit about that, because that's how I first came to know you. Yeah, okay. So the the thing's got called the Grievance Studies Affair. It has a Wikipedia page. I'm sure it's fair and honest and all of that. You can check it out. Uh, There's tons and tons of stuff about it, though. So that was something we did back. It came out in 2018, so just over four years ago. we started it over a year before that in June to August, kind of putting it together over the summer of the previous year. So I want to go backwards before that to give you just because every time I bring it up, people say, well, why in the world did you do that? And so what had happened was that we had started to critique myself and a friend, Peter Bogosian, and then myself and another friend named Helen Pluckrose. The three of us ended up doing this project to write just what it was, was we wrote 20 fake academic articles in a year and submitted them to the highest ranking journals that we could. Normally, you know, a few of these a year is an outstanding academic career. So 20 is literally an entire academic career we did in a year. But uh, in 2000, I don't know, 14, 15, we were criticizing gender studies and feminism and this structural sexism and structural racism idea. And we just got kind of called white men for doing it or white people for doing it, which wasn't a very good uh, criticism. And so we realized that they just wouldn't accept any criticism. And one of the other things they kept telling us was, well, you don't know anything about the field. You've never read anything. So finally, this paper comes out, a real one in 2016, in, in July of 2016, that's about the science of glaciology, studying glaciers, ice, right? And it's literally saying that we have to make glaciology except indigenous myths about ice and feminist art projects and all this stuff or else it's intrinsically a sexist science and i was aghast and i read this whole thing and now i'm deep deep in the what in the world's going on here 
It turns out this journalist writes an article maybe a month later, late July, August, I don't know, something. Maybe it was later than that. But he says, I, I, I hold out that this is an academic hoax and the authors aren't coming clean. They're at the University of Oregon. They're running on a half a million dollars of National Science Foundation money to do this nonsense. And um, they said, no, it's real. And they end up getting a TED talk out of it. Uh, and the university backed them and they said it's real and no, this is really what we do. And my friend Peter and I, that I mentioned a moment ago, Peter Bogosian, we got on the phone and we were talking about it and like, looks like they're ready for a hoax. Why don't mm. we write one? And so we wrote a small scale hoax that was, um, we claimed that, that penises don't exist, that they're socially constructed. And that they cause that social construction causes all of our problems. And as a matter of fact, uh, it causes climate change. And this paper, we actually accidentally uncovers this, this small uh, academic scandal. We sent it off to some low ranking journal in masculinities. They said no. And they said, but we'll happily internally forward this to a sister journal under the Taylor and Francis brand label. And we were like, okay, whatever. And it turns out that the journal that they forwarded it to is probably predatory or is predatory. You pay and they'll publish basically anything you send them, which is meaning that Taylor and Francis has some kind of an internal scam to funnel bad papers into publication for money, which Taylor and Francis, that's, that's a terrible business practice if you're in the business of academic publishing. So there's a little scandal, but we spiked the football and like, we embarrassed gender studies, blah, blah, blah. And that was May 19th, 2017. And we obviously got a lot of criticism and a bit of fanfare and a lot of controversy around this. The paper was called, if anybody wants to look it up, the conceptual penis as a social construct. And one of the pieces of criticism said it was from somebody who really hates us. And he said, well, if you wanted to prove anything, you'd have to do this, 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 and this. He gave us a list. And then we had a friend, in fact, a famous academic hoaxer, Alan Sokol, wrote an article and said, well, we proved something, but not very much. And if we wanted to prove more, we would have had to do this, this, and this. And it was basically the same list. But Peter and I got on the phone and decided the guy who said that if we did all this stuff, that it would satisfy him, it won't satisfy him. And we can prove it by doing all that stuff. So let's write more papers. So we decided to write more papers through, like I said, the summer of 2017, June through August, we're putting it together. At the end of August, we call Helen and ask her if she wants to help. Same Helen Plucker, as I mentioned. And so the three of us start writing academic articles as fast as we can write them, just belting them out. And like I said, we wrote 20 between August of 17. And I guess we wrote the last, the last kind of original thing was in May of 2018. So whatever that works out to 10 months or nine months or whatever which isn't, an, it's like one every two weeks, we were cranking these things out and they're ridiculous. We had one that we said that, you know, rape culture is a big problem in men and it's a big problem in our society and patriarchy, misogyny and rape culture and all this. And so the way that, one way we could study that is by watching how people react when dogs hump each other at dog parks. And by gauging their reactions, we can figure out that rape culture is a major problem and in fact, we can take some cues from the dog park environment and we can overcome rape culture by training men the way we train dogs, shock collars, <laughs> leashes, you know, obedience training, this kind of stuff. And that paper not only got accepted by the leading feminist geography journal, which is called Gender, Place and Culture, it also won an award for excellence uh, in scholarship in feminist geography. And that was pretty shocking. And we had another, we had several that were quite PG-13. So we'll try to kind of stay out of that a little bit. But some of them 
were were pretty edgy because of kind of was the point. Can you get really right. kind of gratuitous, gross, lots of swear words, et cetera, accepted as academic research? You can. Um, kind of gross sexual themes, you can. But one of them was fat bodybuilding, staying kind of in the funnier ones. And uh, we we wrote a paper that said the sport, you know, if, you, if you're a bodybuilder, you make yourself big. But if you're fat, you make yourself big. There's no real difference here. And but society judges them differently. And so to redeem itself as a sport that encourages this difference, the sport of professional bodybuilding needs to adopt a uh, a division. I guess there are four divisions of pro bodybuilding. I don't really keep up with this. I don't know. But we looked it up for the purposes. And we, there needs to be a fifth one called fat bodybuilding. But they don't like competition. So it can't be a competition. It just has to be a political exhibition of fat people. And the sport has to include this. And this was accepted by a journal called Fat Studies, which is the leading journal in that uh, insane subdiscipline. And then we wrote a paper quite famously that we took a chapter, the 10th chapter of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, his, his kind of screed against society and the Jews. And we, in, in the one that purposes to build a party to solve these problems as he's enumerated them, so the the outline for the the early outline for the Nazi Party chapter, and we took out our movement, which became the Nazi Party, and replaced it with intersectional feminism, and then just massaged literature in and made all the sentences work and made sure it wouldn't get caught by plagiarism finders, and that got accepted by a feminist social work journal called Ophelia. Um, literally, Hitler's plan to build a solidarity movement to, you know, regain formal, former glory or something like this. And so all in all, seven of them were taken up by the journals we submitted them to. Six of them were rejected outright. And there were seven for the people quickly doing their second grade subtraction in their head. There were seven that were still under review. The Wall Street Journal caught on to what we were doing and ratted us out, at which point the jig was up. No more papers. Everything got you know, brought to a screeching halt. And that was the 2nd of October, 2018, when that happened. So like I said, just over four years ago. So th the point, of course, was to see, is it possible to learn to mimic what they're doing, draw ridiculous, offensive conclusions, and dangerous conclusions, bad, bad science, bad logic, no science, actually, like anti-science, uh, and get these papers accepted into the academic literature, which of course informs policy, which informs behavior in the corporate level, et cetera. And the answer was, yeah, in fact, it wasn't hard. It took us a few months to figure out kind of the secret sauce to be able to get past the gatekeepers. And then we could publish anything we wanted to. Do you know whom you're voting for? With every product you buy and every dollar you spend, you are casting your vote. Devoted Capital offers values-based investing portfolios that are designed to help you reach your financial goals, all the while making a positive impact on your life and the world around you. They are dedicated to educating, engaging, and empowering you to be wise with your investments and to equip you to be knowledgeable with your vote. Visit their website at devotedcapital.com to learn more about values-based investing or dial 805-372-0821 to speak to your values investor advocate today. Investment advisory services offered through Alliance Advisory and Securities, LLC, registered investment advisor. That's great. So two things. <clears throat> Number one, I'll bet if you were doing it today, those that got rejected would probably be accepted 
because I don't think it's gotten any better after you expose that. In fact, I think it's probably gotten worse um, in, in terms of the environment. Um, number two, you know, people right now um, in the uh, age of COVID, there are so many people that still believe that there are adults running these things. And, and you have adults in academia. So when they're coming down and they're saying all kinds of wicked, uh, evil, wrong things with respect to the science surrounding COVID and, and lockdowns and everything that we just went through, um, you know, pe- people are still spinning in their head, how could they lead us wrong? And I think you exposed that so beautifully. It's one of the greatest trolls I've ever heard of, and and God bless you for it. It's, it really, truly was amazing, and, and I, I think of it often because I think it's just terrific. Well, I'll tell you, at least to the first of those points, and I appreciate those kind words, to the first of those points, no kidding. Um, we actually, you know, had tossed around all kind of along afterwards, whether we should just keep doing it, you know, just do it again or whatever. And I kind of thought that there, there is one way that it has a point, which we did not do, which was to write one, get one more accepted, don't tell anybody, wait a while, and then point out, by the way, there were more, and you should go find them, try to clean them up. We won't tell you how many, there just are more. And then when they yeah. call our bluff, we release the one, and then everybody scrambles and they destroy their own academic discipline, tearing each other apart, accusing everybody of being a fraud. That So we thought about doing that, but we didn't do that. That's pretty, I mean, it's, it's really funny and it's good war, but it's pretty shady. So we didn't do that. And then the second thing, we actually decided that it wouldn't really prove anything. Like academia is like the stuff they're publishing, like you said, is just off the rails now. But what we saw was that they're doing it in medical journals too. And that was, that's extraordinary. And it's truly concerning. And so we actually drafted some first drafts of some papers from medical journals, but we found out that the gatekeeping there, I will argue for good reason. You know, in humanities, social sciences, arts and sciences department type uh, disciplines, I don't think there should be any credentialed gatekeeping going on. If I come up with a brilliant math proof, a math journal should publish it. If I find a brilliant scientific discovery, a scientific journal should could, should consider it. When we start talking about medicine, though, maybe there maybe having the requirement that you have to have a verifiable MD to publish is you know a good idea. Like so, if I even discovered some brilliant new medical thing. It would behoove everybody for me to go to, you know, present that idea one way or another in a medical team at a, you know, university hospital or yeah. something to investigate it before it gets published. And it turns out that the medical journals do gatekeep on credentials. They check that you're actually a doctor. Well, we're not. And we can't make up that kind of credential um, without some serious forgery that we're not interested in getting in. But as it turned out, it didn't matter because not exactly, I mean, we were pretty heavily gratuitous when we wrote these about a year and a half ago. Um, They've come to pass approximately. So for example, just to kind of give you an idea of how awful we were, a couple of the papers that we drafted for medical journals at least 18, maybe 18 months ago, maybe two years ago. Time is weird lately, but uh, (laughs) we, we drafted one that said that we needed to push for something called birth equity, that, uh, the, the method therefore was going to be to, strongly start to encourage white women to have abortions so that white women have fewer babies so that we can achieve birth equity uh, across the racial components. And something 
the concept of birth equity is certainly being pushed. I don't think that they have come straight out and said that they're going to encourage white abortions. But yeah, no, it's the idea we, of, uh, I mean, eugenics, you know, it's, it's just another form of that anyway. Right. It, well, it is. It literally is on like a bunch of levels. And the uh, second one we drafted was that the, this one has come to pass virtually identically with, I'm surprised they didn't find the detail I found, but we, we wanted to claim that the Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm is in fact uh, hypocritical and that what we should be doing is using equity to gauge how much harm we do and where and when. And so we should wow. reprioritize harm uh, done through, through medical practice or lack of practice or mispractice or malpractice. Um, and I dug up some detail. It turns out the guy, and I forgot his name, he's a British physician in the 1840s or thereabouts, um, that, that first actually documented the uh, primary non nocerum, which is or no nocere or something like that, which is the Latin for first do no harm. And it turns out he is this major figure in Western medicine. And he, in his book about all this, there's a missive in the, in the you know, later chapters where he had traveled to colonial India and he had been hijacked by like these five guys that like almost killed him and all this. He's telling this story and I think he calls them savages or something. And so, you know, obviously that means that his dictum of do no harm is obviously racist. And so, you know, I dragged that into the paper. But again, we, we never could submit those uh, because we don't have the credentials. Nobody's willing to lose their medical license or risk it to play a game like this. Uh, that we could find anyway. But at any rate, it didn't matter because they've written things extraordinarily similar and worse, prioritizing care by race. Yeah. That's almost standard in, in a lot of places now. Massachusetts, for certain, they're doing that. Uh, it looks like there's going to be some lawsuits. I think there are some lawsuits in New York, somewhere else. Maybe it is and maybe also in Massachusetts where they've gotten in trouble for explicitly having done so. Um, so, I mean, they were ahead of faster than we could make it up. They were doing it. Yeah, well, I, I think, listen, you deserve a tremendous amount of credit for breaking open a lot of this and, and again, showing that the emperor has no clothes um, and, and how corrupt academia is and, and how sideways they have really gone. And, and we're seeing that with um, so much of what's happening today. Um, I, I would love to get your, uh, your thoughts on a couple of things. So uh, first, uh, Twitter. Well, if, I, um, if I might just say... The emperor, it's not just that the emperor has no clothes. The emperor is not only fully naked, but is doing a full San Francisco, if you know what I mean. And, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing short of, I mean, that's really what this is at this point. And people, yeah. people who can't see it are, are very willfully not seeing it. Um, yeah. It's bad. I, 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 I think there's a lot of people that are being manipulated. There's certainly a lot of people that are, uh, you know, I, I, I think in classes of people, there's people that are mm -hmm. not paying attention at all, right? Uh, on, on both sides of the political spectrum, you know, they're sure. going about their lives. Uh, you know, in fact, I think uh, looking at some of this stuff would be like looking at the sun, and I think it would damage them forever. Um, <laughs> and then there's... Uh, and then there's people that, um, you know, are, are part of it all, right? And, and, yeah. are, and are purposing and forwarding, you know, the, um, the wickedness of the, of the world that we're in right now for their own purposes. Yeah. And, um, and, and uh, cult-like devotion is, is uh, a part of a lot of those people. Um, you know, in fact, we're, we're seeing it. Um, maybe you uh, have already weighed in on this, but the... Um, Let's declare a pandemic amnesty uh, Atlantic article by Emily Oster. Um, the 
the funny thing about what they're doing, and I said they would do this. I said it on this show. I've said it in a couple of different examples that that they're not going to say that we were right. The people that used common sense, logic, looked at the available evidence and said, oh, this is not going to be the thing you guys are saying it's going to be. And oh, these lockdowns are going to be terrible for people's livelihoods and humanity in general. You know, they, they instead of going, okay, our, our bad, we made some mistakes and we're sorry for them and, and we need to, you know, come back together. They're saying, hey, we were really smart at the time and you guys were just lucky. You guys didn't really know, so therefore, all that you accidentally fell into and being right was just not not because you guys used logic. It was because you were lucky and you were just fortunate to land on the right side of this. And yeah. we were the good people. Our intentions reign supreme here. So therefore, you know, we do not owe you an apology and should suffer no consequences for shutting you guys down and vilifying everybody who didn't agree with us. Yeah, I saw that, and that I, I agree with that. That I started making that guess pretty early on too. Is it that that's how that would kind of unfold when we got to this point where it started to become undeniable that you know the calculation was a little off, or, or all the way off, as it were. And so, well, here we are. Uh, I did look up Emily Oster, by the way. If you look up her Twitter bio, it says that she's unapologetically data driven which I find to be a suspicious claim given the circumstances. I, I have an official fact checker um, who loves to follow me on Twitter, and um, you, you know he, he blocked me because I didn't do what he wanted, and I interviewed somebody who said I shouldn't interview, and we had had a oh, cup yeah. of coffee socially because I tried to like get to understand him a little bit. And he says the same thing, that he's data-driven, and he sends me all of this regularly skewed stuff that is from a left-wing uh, perspective, and the data is usually junk, and he wants to repeat on a regular basis when I post crime stats and things like that. He'll post things about it's red states that drive the crime, forgetting the fact that they're all blue cities that are within those red states where all the crime is at. You know, he'll do things like that that I believe are purposefully misleading. He's a PR guy, so that that's his bend, is, is to spin it for how, however he wants. Um, but anyway, he blocked me, um, and then and then unblocked me just to continue to troll me, I guess. So oh, wow. it, 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 cra- it cracks me up. Um, That's funny. Speaking of uh, Twitter, um, so your Twitter account was one of my favorites, and I know I'm not alone in that uh, because you were brilliantly messing with these people's minds on a regular basis, and you were driving them crazy. And you're probably more responsible than anyone for calling out the people that were sexualizing children and uh, pushing for uh, the, you know, medical transitions and, you know, uh, mutilation of kids and all that stuff. You, you, You came up with that term groomer, which they, and I do think it's brilliant, tried to make it like it was the N word towards. Uh, the LGBT community, instead of what it really is, is we're calling out people who are doing either, you know, pedophile behavior or actually grooming kids. I mean, it has a definition. And, uh, and so you, you know, you brilliantly made that a thing. And so talk a little bit about that, your cancellation uh, off of Twitter, and the potential for Elon Musk to restore you. We have two major tragedies in this country that I take personally, 
and its poor health and veganism. Battle both by ordering from my friends at Good Ranchers. 85% of all grass-fed beef is imported from other countries, but because they process it here, they can slap the product of USA label on it. Because of this, over 100,000 independent American farms and ranches have closed. Good Ranchers sells 100% American meat. A Good Ranchers subscription locks in your price to protect you against inflation. Enter code LIBERTY at checkout for $30 off plus free shipping or go to goodranchers.com liberty. Every item is steakhouse quality and you can order the finest steaks, seafood, and chicken at half the price of those other online meat guys. And I'll tell you, in direct head-to-head competition in my discriminating household, Good Ranchers just tastes much better. Enter code LIBERTY at checkout for $30 off plus free shipping or go to goodranchers.com slash liberty. Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. R.I.P. me. Um, but I should have worn my OK Groomer t-shirt. Uh, I got kicked off of Twitter over this issue um, the, to get that that part of the story out of the way. Uh, I had been calling a particular trans activist in Brooklyn. Uh, okay, I've been doing the OK Groomer, OK Groomer to this person, which is very frustrating because it's dismissive. You right. can't do anything about it. No matter what they say back, you can just say OK Groomer again. It's really, you know, a rhetorical weapon that they handed us, and I just repurposed it. It used to be OK yeah. Boomer, obviously, yeah. and so we repurposed the weapon. We threw it back at them. They're not happy. They were not happy, and uh, so I got it hit too close to home. Yeah, I got frozen out of Twitter for a period of time to to slap me on the wrist and tell me that I was a bad boy. And uh, so I came back on, and then they kicked me out a second time for an old tweet saying the same thing. And I thought, well, I see what's going on here. And I went and I proactively, I, I had just flown to DC for an event and I went to my hotel room and instead of like going and checking something out in the city or grabbing food or whatever, I proactively deleted every one of my over like 700 tweets calling people groomers, which <laughs> took, a, took the whole evening. And um, so I did that. And then a few days later, said person said something else. It came across my my feed one way or another, and I saw it, and I said, okay, child sexualization specialist, and I was permanently banned from Twitter for that yeah. offense, which I thought was clever, so I figure I it got was banned clever. from Twitter for life for winning a word game with a leftist, which you're not allowed to do. Word games yeah. are their province. But I started calling these people groomers. What happened was I, I, I'd been working in, I had done a bunch of work on, on critical race theory. I kind of, you know, coming out of the grievance studies thing, and then there's a book, Cynical Theories. And if you've read Cynical Theories, which I did with Helen Pluckrose, our goal for that was to take what we had learned in the grievance studies papers writing project and uh, set it out to the world and attach it to postmodern theory without mentioning the fact that we did these hoax papers. So it wasn't going to be the point. We're just going to talk about what the stuff was. And if, if you've read it, though, there's six or seven domains, and there are a few more. So we had, you know, post-colonial theory, queer theory, critical race theory. I'm trying to remember them in order. Um, feminism and gender studies, disability studies, fat studies, but there's also media studies, there's critical education theory. There's a handful more. And so beyond what we did. And we did one for just kind of the philosophy of knowledge as well for, from the woke perspective. And so we put the, these were the different chapters of cynical theory. So we put these things out and we left, we did not do media studies and we did not do education theory just to make 
sure that's clear which ones we did and did not do. But there were, I tell people it was like after Cynical Theories came out and I was building out my company that I have now, which is New Discourses, which is just dedicated to putting out more information about my research on these things. I had to pick, I say it's like I walked into a room full of doors and I had to pick a door to go through. And then there's a critical race door and then there's the education door and there's all these doors. But I didn't know enough about education yet. So I figured I'll set, leave that one to the side. I had a friend who wanted to take it up and then he bailed on it. So he didn't do it. So, but I had more reasons to leave it to the side. I told, I called my friend in 2019, uh, I should say 2019. I called him and I said, if they pick queer theory as the thing they're going to lean into, they're shooting themselves in the foot. They, they're, they're, they're destroying themselves. So I don't need to do that one. People can see what's wrong with that without it being explained to them. And, you know, I kind of sifted through and I chose critical race theory as the way to go. Being American, it was a very fortuitous decision because I built out a huge library of information that really put some context. In fact, I think it put all of the color on the canvas around what the reaction was after George Floyd died. Yeah. Um, and it was already there. I had spent at that point nine or 10 months doing CRT full time all the time. All I was reading, all I was putting out. So it was a huge library of stuff. Worked out well. It was a fortuitous or providential decision to do that. But in the process, I had shelved these other dimensions to read and deepen my knowledge on critical race theory. And everybody wanted to talk about critical race theory, so everything kind of meshed. But then I hit the point where I felt like with the publication of Race Marxism and the uh, workshop series I did the previous summer, uh, last year in the summer, that, that was the same rough outline. I, just, I, I even said out loud last July when I did that in 2021, as I've now said the last thing I feel like I need to say about critical race theory. I don't need to talk about it anymore. I'm going to compile this, put it into a book, but I'm done with it. And, you know, people want me to come talk about it, but I'm not interested in it anymore. I've, I've said what needs to be said. Go read the book. Uh, listen to the audio book because I added in a podcast at the end as an appendix that makes it even more clear than I did in the book. Um, so fine. And I started to kind of juggle education. I said I was going to do, you know, like the New Horizons spacecraft flew by Pluto at like a billion miles an hour and took those really great pictures of it. But it just shot right past. That was what I wanted to do with education. I wanted to fly by take some high resolution photos of what's going on behind the scenes that got us here in education from a theory perspective and then fly on by and pick the next thing to work on, which was probably going to be the gender and sex stuff. And as it turns out, I got sucked into the gravity of education because it's an enormous, complicated mess. And that yes. sent me into other dimensions like this theology of Marxism thing I've been exploring mostly this year, the education theory in deep and then the, the queer theory all kind of at once. And what I realized is that the educational thing that they're doing, people say, oh, it's indoctrination. No, it's not. It's actually what is formally called thought reform. But a euphem like I guess it's not euphemistic. I guess it's like diphemistic or whatever, malphemistic or whatever. An uglier word for thought reform is grooming. It's ideological or cult grooming. And it yes. matches exactly. So I see this grooming, and I sort of made, sort of made these podcasts that are called Groomer Schools. And I did four episodes of that so far. I'm planning a fifth one kind of vaguely. I haven't, I know what it is. I just haven't done the homework for it yet to do it. But number one is uh, the long history of sexuality education and Marxist regimes and how they used it to try to break up the younger generation, to break them off from them, their families, from their religions, from their prevailing culture. 
uh, from their parents in particular, but also to destabilize them psychologically from themselves. And so that was the first episode. The second episode, I read through an academic paper about early childhood education and retooling it to overcome the myth, they say, or the narrative of childhood innocence. And like, this is dangerous. This is this yeah. isn't like you. This isn't silly. This is literally dangerous. This is destroying a generation through the schools, which yeah. we pay for. And then the third one uh, talks about how critical race theory and queer theory are used together as a one-two punch, following straight out of a tactic, an identity politics tactic that Mao Zedong used in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. In episode four, I actually did a paper. I read through one of their academic papers describing uh, drag queen story hour. Why are there so many drag queens? Well, there's an academic paper explaining why and what their purposes are. And if you read the paper, it's impossible to not use the, I, I, I got grilled by the BBC a couple weeks ago. This guy's like, yeah, but I, isn't it just a little too far to call them groomers? And I was like, let me read something to you. And I read some of this academic paper on, on, um, done drag queen story hour to him, which I'd already told him I knew about and exist. I was like, what word would you use for that? And he's like, well, yes. And I was like, that's what I thought. (laughs) You have nothing to say to that. Oh man, that's so good. Can we, can we dive into the drag queen story hour uh, a little bit? And the reason, the reason being because, um, that they have this insistence on on this, and and it is inexplicable if you're just a decent human being. You just don't understand why, you know, uh, having um, you know men in uh, you know minstrel makeup and lingerie uh, reading to your children or entertaining them is of any value. You just you, you can't comprehend it. Um, but yet here in our community, our most vile detractor. Um, is uh, it, uh, we he he he's one of the guys that have organized these things and celebrated them here, and and he's a uh, you know completely against um, all sense of decency and and a regular attacker of Robs and and us here on the show, and you know the guy's a um, a, a disgusting human being, and. Yeah, he is. He is, and and uh, uh, with it, you know, ex- it, yeah. Explain to me what what their fascination is, and, and kind of dive into that a little. Um, it's easier if I just read some of this to you. I mean, it's Let's really it. it's easier if I just read. So this is from this isn't even the good stuff. I'm just going to read a little bit from the abstract, right? So this article, written collaborative, collaboratively by an education scholar, by the way, who happens to be trans. And a drag queen, which goes by Little Miss Hot Mess, and I think Harris Kornstein is this person's real name, uh, involved in an organizing drag queen story hour, contextualizes the program within the landscape of gender, landscape of gender and education, as well as within the world of drag, and argues that drag queen story hour provides a generative extension of queer pedagogy into the world of early childhood education. Now we're going to dip in and out of this paper a few times, but let me pause on generative extension. That's a technical term in critical education theory. That's the application of Marxist theory to education um, in the later 20th century critical theory school of Marxism. And so generative, the idea is that you're supposed to put things in front of the kids that raise the issue. That's what generative is about. So the teacher, therefore, can always deny any responsibility whatsoever. So the goal is you stick a drag queen in front of a kid and the kid's gonna say something about why are you a boy dressed as a girl and then all of a sudden the child has now generated the opportunity mm. to have the discussion. Well, do boys always have to dress like boys or can they sometimes dress however they want? Right. 
But it's not just for that. But the idea is to get the child to bring up the subject and to talk about it in a uh, way that is going to be able to be geared toward whether it's inclusion or equity or whatever, in this case, mostly inclusion. But going on, we're going to skip a couple of uh, a couple of sentences here because it's just you know technical academic writing. Um, the authors discuss five interrelated elements of Drag Queen Story, offer, story Hour that offer early childhood educators a way into a sense of queer imagination. So these are the five. So the goal is to take kids into queer imagination, and these are the five main things into early childhood education that this is supposed to do. Play as praxis. Praxis means activism. It means the activism you do that's informed by theory. Play is the mechanism. So playing around with the idea of gender, playing around with the idea of what, say, a school is supposed to be, right? Schools are supposed to be everybody's kind of learning the rules, following the rules, no, we're going to play. So play is praxis, aesthetic transformation. So you're going to transform who you are by what you look like. Strategic defiance, literally teaching children to break rules. Destigmatization of shame huh. and embodied kinship. Kinship. That's families. And they say ultimately the authors propose that drag pedagogy provides a performative approach to queer pedagogy that is not simply about LGBT lives. That's their marketing pitch, right? It's about making right. it making sure we care about LGBT lives. But it is not simply about LGBT lives, but in, in italics they say, but living queerly. So the mm. goal is to teach children, whatever this means to live queerly. This is upsetting. And the whole paper, I mean, there are a number of things I could read to you. For, I want to read to you a little these bit. People more are, these people are demonic. They're de this is demonic. This is intentionally hiding the ball. Actually, let me find that because, I mean, there's a whole section about just doing uh, strategic defiance. But there's this part in this where they openly tell you that it's not about empathy. It's not about empathy at all. That they use it as a as a marketing pitch. Yeah, so well, they're they're liars. Can be achieved. Yeah, they're they're liars, and that's I'm, the whole gender affirming nonsense. You know, you you don't want to affirm our you know trans kids, and you know that's the attack here, and the whole gender affirming care. All of that is nonsense. They are they are liars. They are liars, and so, deceivers really. So the, the, that section's titled "From Empathy to Embodied Kinship." Okay, so. You start with empathy to get where you're going, which is embodied kinship, kinship with the drag queen, and is, is actually where it goes. It says, finally, it is often assumed that the primary pedagogical goal, goal of queer education should be to increase empathy toward LGBT people. While this premise has some merit and underlies many sincere projects in education and cultural work, including Drag Queen Story Hour, the notion of empathy has also been critiqued by feminist scholars, yada, yada, yada. And it causes false empathy and so on, right? And it says it's undeniable. This is the next skipping the rest of that paragraph and going to the next paragraph. It is undeniable that Drag Queen Story Hour participates in many of these tropes of empathy. From the marketing language the program uses to its selection of books, much of this is strategically done in order to justify its educational value. However, we suggest that drag supports scholars' critiques of empathy rather than reifying the concept, blah, blah, blah. That is, drag is an imaginative. Whoops, I pushed the wrong button. Drag is an imaginative. I'm skipping to the bottom of the paragraph. And creative process. It is grounded in building character, both in the sense of constructing a persona and in better understanding one's own relations to others. This approach can support students in finding the unique or queer aspects of themselves 
rather than attempting to understand what it is like to be LGBT. So straight up, they're liars. In fact, they tell you that they're liars. And what do they mean by embodied kinship? Um, At the the start of the conclusion, it said they're talking about how it gets branded as family friendly. They're saying, does this take the edge away from from drag? And it says it may be the drag queen story hour is, quote, quote, family friendly in the sense that it is accessible and inviting to families with children. But it is less a sanitizing force than it is a preparatory introduction to alternate modes of kinship. If you want to know what the left's real plan is for your kids, just look at the reaction to the work Patriot Mobile did in multiple school districts in Texas. The left is losing their minds. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative mobile phone provider and a force for conservative values. This is because they take a portion of your bill and fund conservative causes and candidates who believe in the sanctity of life, freedom of speech, the Second Amendment, and they're winning. Patriot Mobile has affordable plans for you, your family, even your business. They offer the same nationwide coverage as major carriers because they use multiple major networks. Plus, you're supporting conservative values with every call. Go to PatriotMobile.com forward slash Liberty or call 972-PATRIOT. Get free activation with the offer code Liberty. Special discounts are also available for veterans and first responders. Join our movement. Make the switch today and a difference tomorrow. PatriotMobile.com forward slash Liberty. PatriotMobile.com forward slash Liberty or call 972-PATRIOT. No, it's a predatory. It's a predatory introduction. They want to molest our kids. Here, Drag Queen Story Hour is, and this is their this is their words. Here, Drag Queen Story Hour is quote family friendly in the sense of quote family as an old school queer code to identify and connect with other queers on the street. And then, if this isn't good enough, let me just give you the very last sentence of this paper, and we won't talk about the paper specifically anymore, or I won't read from it. We're reading books while we read each other's looks, and we're leaving a trail of glitter that won't ever come out of the carpet. That is so creepy. That's just that's why yeah. did you call it rumor schools, James? I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. I would gladly accept a different word. And so these are the things I read to the BBC journalist, and I was like, what yeah. do we call that? And he's like, <laughs> he gets uncomfortable laughing. <laughs> yes, well, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, well. And then he's like, well, this is probably just a fringe paper. And I was like, well, it's a paper describing a, pro- a practice. It was from 2021 in the spring. Uh, describing a practice that came out this year in virtually every school, often in the counties. My county, but not the school systems here, had these events for kids uh, here in Tennessee. Not exactly. I mean, my, tr- my county went like 70% to Trump. It's not exactly a, you know progressive bastion here and we had a drag queen story hour event at the courthouse and um this is everywhere and it's in a journal called uh, it's called curriculum inquiry which is one of the biggest curriculum journals in academia this isn't a fringe journal this isn't a small journal this is an extremely influential academic journal in education um so i don't I told the the guy, he said, you know, don't you think that this is just a, you know, fringe thing? And I was like, it doesn't wash anymore, man. It just yeah. doesn't wash. No, this because is it is everywhere. I mean, we, we have people in our community, again, 
um, who are promoting this, saying that they are proud to organize these things and celebrate them. Um, they want to molest our kids. Yes. And, and the ones who don't will give them credit. They want to present the child just like Disney wants to present the child with something they're then going to go to an activist teacher and bring up because once the child brings it up, now it's a conversation you have to have. So you can imagine this can be brought up in other ways. You can imagine a, a teacher, you know, you got first or second graders, they got their crayons or whatever. And it's like, why don't we, uh, you know, we have a big holiday season coming up. Why don't we prepare for our family holidays? Why doesn't everybody draw a nice picture of their families? Show us what your house, you know, draw, you know, the whole thing. And now, oh, wow, I was looking through all of your pictures and some of you guys drew a mom, but there's no dad. Some of you drew a mom and a dad. Some of you, a couple of you actually drew a mom and a mom. Let's talk about different families. And now all of a sudden you're off to the same races. They used the excuse yeah. of a perfectly benign activity, like drawing a picture of your family. And you say, well, you, they come back and say, oh, so you're saying you don't want children to draw pictures of their family. And it's like, no, I don't want an activist teacher talking about what was drawn. Yeah. Draw yeah. it if you want. Draw two moms. Who cares? And you, you know, draw that, oh, your dad's not in the house. And you draw the single mom situation. Fine. Oh, you have a lovely family too. Go give that to your mom. I'm sure she'll love it. That's all you have to say. The point isn't to generate a political discussion with seven-year-olds. And that's where things have right. gone off the rails. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Wow. Yeah, that's disturbing. So uh, are we going to get you back on Twitter? I Oh, yeah. Elon said everybody who got suspended is going to get back on. So here's my problem. When I got suspended, they said you can file an appeal. So I took my advantage of my appeal to write a, a letter telling them what a terrible company they are, how I'm not sorry, and how I only pretended to be in the wrong so I could get my stupid account unlocked when they unlocked me in the past. <laughs> Good and for what you. what they did amounted literally to something out of communist brainwashing prisons that I wasn't exactly happy to participate in, so I did so in bad faith. And so I sent that months, you know, a couple months ago and I got kicked off. I think it was the beginning of August. I don't think that that was the way that you, you know, appeal if you want to get back on. But then <laughs> they haven't let me do another appeal. I thought I would just send them one a day until they got really sick right. of me. And they won't let no, me do another one. they disappeared Yeah, they, they make sure you can't do that. Well, yesterday I went and looked just to see if something changed. I said, you, no, you're still suspended. I said, you can submit an appeal. So I clicked on the button to see what would happen or the link. And it went to the link and I could submit another appeal. Aha. So I submitted one. And all I wrote, though, in my appeal box was uh, wrongfully terminated under previous communist ownership. So I don't know <laughs> if that's going to work or not. Uh, well, I uh, I suspect you might be back on. Um, you know, and, and listen, none, yeah, none, none of our hope should be in any billionaire. Um, but I am uh, I am. Uh, encouraged that at least uh, Elon um, is seeming to indicate that he'd like to have free speech back again. And having free speech on that platform, I think, will do us all good. Um, being on equal footing with our oppressors, because that's what they became, um, I, I think will do, will do good, because our policies, our thoughts, our ideas, they win in an open, free exchange marketplace. Um, that's why they have to be so afraid of our quote unquote misinformation, disinformation, which flatly just means, you know, anytime we disagree with them, they're going to put it in one of those buckets. 
Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that, uh, this is going to be, especially because they're screaming and screeching and all the harpies are out, you know, uh, uh, losing their minds about it right now. So I, I think it's going to be good for society. Yeah. They're having a bad day and it's usually a, a portent of something good for society. Um, I will admit though, that I've soured to the kind of, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, practically speaking, there's no need to try to convince me of it because I agree with it and will use the platform for those reasons. But I've like kind of lost interest. Like social media has, I'm very disenchanted with social media now. It's it's a pretty dark place to spend time. It is. And Twitter is particularly bad. I don't know what it would be like after, if it gets more, let's say equalized, but it's been particularly bad. I feel like Twitter is, you know, if I were to look into the to the eye of the deep state and try to read its mind, um, I feel like Twitter has figured out how to weaponize the echo chamber effect. Something happens in yeah. the media. You know, Paul Pelosi gets attacked or whatever. This is the latest one that I actually went to Twitter to watch how it unfolded because it's faster than the news. More interesting yes. things are happening. Details are coming out. Well, it turns out a large proportion of those details are wrong, and it's virtually impossible to tell which ones are right and which ones are wrong. And so it creates these kind of like ideas bouncing around inside. of. I have this picture like a metal chamber, and they're bouncing around, and it's forming a laser like the Death Star shoots. And then they're able to point that laser at things and, and do damage. I don't have a very good – I haven't worked out the metaphor very well, but I feel like it's, it, it takes advantage of the echo chamber effect. It's a good start. To, to create a, an, an information weapon that's through contouring algorithms, through contouring whatever else, they can actually direct that weapon and fire it to achieve you know, narrative-related goals. Now, I've watched them kind of blow up their own fortresses with that weapon over and over and over again for the past year. So maybe um, you know, they've lost control of it. But I feel like I don't like participating in what amounts to a gigantic you know, psychological warfare weapon at the same time i feel almost like i got hit with cold water when i got thrown off twitter i'm like what am i what what am i doing why am i doing it yeah yeah no i i get it the the reason i do uh some of it's show prep stuff right you see what yeah, people are talking about and kind of what's bubbling up right you have to. and because you, you really do it's it's the world's newsstand in real time yeah, and it's that speed that I appreciate. You see what people are talking yeah. about, and you also see, you know, how the other side um, of the political divide is working out in real time their talking points. You know, yes. they all land on something very quickly. It's like they all get the same memo. The, um, you know, and and the Paul Pelosi thing and and all of this stuff. There, they are weaponizing, um, you know, our dissent right now in that form of that stochastic terrorism. You know, which that yeah, that yeah, turned yeah, yeah. in. Didn't exist, you know, didn't exist. I try not to bring this up because I don't really want anything to happen with it, but I was on that Pelosi attacker guy's website. He had a tab dedicated to me, and nobody seems to have noticed this except like three journalist outlets. So I don't think it's important, but I'm like, why am I there? What did I, I didn't do anything. And so all these people, you know, were frantically sending me messages. So I happened to be in Boston when that happened. Uh, and so I'm getting all these frantic messages sent to me and I'm, it's like, I've only, I've, I've been on the road for several days. I'm only sleeping like five hours a night. I'm trying to like get to sleep early. And then I have this and I'm like, up yeah. till two <laughs> again, I have to be out of bed at six, um, for whatever I was doing. And it's like, uh, 
And so I don't know if you, if you, if I come off a little bit off, I have a little bit of a cold that I suspect I got from four days of not sleeping. Yeah. Um, be, not because of that particular incident. It didn't disrupt my sleep except the one night when I'm trying to dig into this and find out what's going on. But yeah, it's like, you know, why, what in the world is going on with that? What are the talking points are going to fall out of it? How do they crystallize on those? That information is actually, that's why I was looking on Twitter. Just because, yeah. you know, it was a weekend and no new articles are really coming out very, very quickly. What's and, going and, on? Yeah, and you won't get that from the other um social media sites that are, you know, geared towards one, you know, side of the aisle or political divide versus the other. You you kind of need the one where it is that that, you know, simulated free for all. Um and that's how you kind of yeah. see, you know, what what bubbles up. Yeah, you know, what kind of condenses. Their functions for sure, but there is no dynamic there. There's no and that's where those talking points and, you know, the narratives and everything get crafted is where the dynamic is between the different sides and people are firing ideas back and forth off of one another and you know whatever makes it kind of through the defenses is what they pick up and run with um and so and it's almost like they don't care who the running back is as long as it's the guy that got through the defenses uh and yeah. so they commit themselves to some really really shady arguments but it's it, it's very difficult to do i actually feel probably in practical terms or maybe three practical terms where being off Twitter has kind of impacted me. One is kind of the camaraderie. Another is this specifically, this ability to kind of keep up. Uh, and the third, of course, is to be able to broadcast my message um, with, yeah. you know, more than a few hundred people interacting with it. As you know, yeah. I was getting often thousands or tens of thousands on Twitter. Well, so um, in, in our final few minutes here, um, it, number one, is there anything else that you want to touch on? Um, number two, where do we find you and follow you? Um, so make sure everybody has that. And, um, you know, man, I'm just so grateful for you coming on. I, I'm a great admirer of yours. So this is really particularly fun for me personally. Yeah, this has been a fun one. Um, yeah, a couple of things I'll just kind of touch on real quick. If you, if you want to follow me, I probably will be back on Twitter, but I'm on all of the social medias at conceptual james or most of them i'm not sure if i'm on all of them unfortunately i only post actively on one so that my social media people aren't scrambling all over the internet to try to find things i've done and aggregate them and which happens to be truth at the moment and will probably become twitter again if i get back on but it's at conceptual james the company i run is called new discourses the website is newdiscourses.com. that's where you'll find my articles and my podcasts videos are coming out right now about education. Um, I have a book coming out in December, so about a month from now, called The Marxification of Education. And I did a lecture series in July that's coming out uh, about the same subject. So two of the four videos have come out. If you're interested in what's happening in education, it's super important. I think that the educational aspect is one of the main, you know, it's kind of like we're playing Jenga with the, with the tyrants. And it's one of the main pieces that if that one comes out, the tower is falling over. Um, and so uh, the education piece, especially social emotional learning, I think people really need to understand. Yeah. Like where I just discussed with the drag queens about the generative concept, that's how they're stealing your kid's education. They're using generative yep. themes to steal a math lesson or a reading lesson or whatever else into a politics lesson. 
I believe uh, it so, was uh, ben, ben Shapiro the other day, and I think it's brilliant. He said, we got to stop calling them progressives and start calling them transgressives. Because I mean, that's they, not wrong, actually. They are. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. If we wanted to be historical about it, and that's a conversation for a different hour, I would call it actually, they're actually reactionary. Uh, what they are is they're part of what I call the romantic reaction to the um, to the Enlightenment. I think there were the Enlightenment happened, of course, you know, following the Reformation. And I think there were two massive reactions to that that were kind of you could see them as generally conservative versus progressive as the words meant in the 18th century, which they're not the same now. But right. one of those two is the romantic reaction. And that's what we get the so-called progressive movement out of. And it's always been transgressive and transformational and transmutative. And it's rooted in fundamentally different assumptions about the world and reality, uh, and in particular power. Uh, and I think that you know we're now in a position to be able to clarify this, or at least that's my project right now. Yeah, well, terrific. Well, again, thank you so much for com- coming on, and um, you know, hopefully, we'll get to to see you back here in our neck of the woods soon. Uh, love to do this in person. We'll have the you know part two in the studio here. And, yeah, I'd love uh, to get know, back out there. It'd be yeah, great. Yeah, well, you let us know whenever you want to. We'll make it happen. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get on the phone then. We'll see what we can do. All right, awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Lindsay. Appreciate you. And um, this is an awesome episode for me personally. So thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Liberty Station. I hope you enjoy the show. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on Rumble, Liftable TV, or Spotify, or anywhere that you consume podcasts. Please text these episodes to your friends and support our advertisers. 